this testimony within the Gospels is overwhelming. There is no doubt that the modern church in America has failed its people by not teaching them the earliest stages of church history. Thank you for tuning into Facts, a podcast that primarily focuses on the church fathers, the apocryphal works, the canon of scripture, the text of scripture, and the scripture itself. You can find more information about us on explorechristianity.net. Thank you again for tuning in. Yes, thanks for tuning in. Today is a special episode of Facts because I'm doing this, number one, on my personal Facebook page. Number two, I am doing it on our Explore Christianity YouTube page, so it's going to be from multiple perspectives. It's also going to be on my podcast later tonight. Uh, But one of the subjects that continually comes up today that I want to address both for the online forums as well as the podcast is that about the idea of anonymous gospels. The the line that we have been fed over and over again about the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that it actually was not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're gospels that have been attributed to them over the years. Now, the thing that we have to do when we look into the historical nature of any document is to corroborate the evidence that we have both internally and externally. And those that have been following my program on facts for many, many years uh, and, and all the way back to when we were with Explain International, I have demonstrated through multiple avenues the internal and external evidence for the Gospels. And that the names that are attributed to them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are exactly the people that are behind them. Although I take a more complex view, I don't believe that it is that simple. I don't think Matthew's gospel is simple. I think John's gospel was a group gospel. I think Matthew's gospel was a group gospel. I think Matthew was involved. I think John was involved in his, but I do not believe they were independent in just that they were themselves doing the work. I think they had help. I think they had groups. I think they had church leaders that were invested into their gospels and in the publication of them as well. So one of the things that I want to talk about today, because the modern era has changed the narrative. No one ever doubted the gospel narratives and their authors up until the last couple hundred years with skepticism and post-enlightenment thinking. And that is that they believe that the Christian church and all of its evidence is based on bias or things that are just fantasy made up or they cannot be proven because they're 100 years after or 150 years after and so forth. And one of the main arguments that I have demonstrated and will demonstrate today is that the churches were built around structure and protection of the text of the apostles. And it wasn't later people that established these things. It was the apostles themselves. They knew corruption was happening to their text. They knew things were taking place that were in in the middle of actually twisting and manipulating their, their writings, their names. Paul himself, at the end of 2 Thessalonians, talks about how he signed that letter in his own hand, authenticating it by putting his name in there, as he does in all his epistles. Meaning that when he was finishing an epistle, even if he used a scribe or an amanuensis, he would make sure to do the salutation with his own hand, distinguishing it and making it authentic amongst the rest. And then he would distribute the letter out. He was doing this out of means of protection because obviously his letters were being tampered with. 
Even Second Peter tells us that Paul's scripture or his writings were equal to that of the scripture and that they were being twisted like the other scriptures. So even Peter, writing Second Peter, knew of the manipulating of Paul's letters. Paul knew the manipulating of his own letters. And we should not even be surprised that in their lifetime, when they saw the rise of changing and impersonations, that they would need to set boundaries, orders, and protection for their actual text themselves. And we see demonstrations of this throughout the New Testament, particularly with Paul and his students. We look at Timothy, for example, uh, and I read this in one of my recent podcasts. In 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy to guard the deposit that has been entrusted to him and that the, the deposit was the teaching. It was the instruction. I don't believe that was just merely verbal or oral instruction. I think that was also inclusive of a written instruction like the letter that Paul was sending to him himself. So when going through the New Testament, we begin to see writers and apostles putting up protection for their own text. Paul multiple times in his, in his uh, work on the epistles and his letters back and forth with the church is what you find is his own name. And then you find a person who's representing the church that he's writing to who is with him. And that this individual or these trusted individuals are going to send the letter back. So you have this chain of custody. You have the writer, you have his audience, and you have the one that is going to deliver the message. He's going to deliver the writing. The recipients know this person that's going to be bringing the letter. The writer knows the person. He is a trusted individual from both parties. And therefore, when the letter is finished, his name is going to be included in the epistle. And even at times, Paul would say, I'm sending so-and-so back to you, letting you know, expect a letter in his hand because I'm sending this letter by his hand. We see this in Colossians, which would have probably delivered two letters at one time. And then that letter was intended and, and rightfully intended to be given to, I think, himself there to the Colossian church and to Philemon as an individual who was housing one of the churches dealing with his runaway slave. I believe that was what was going on in the situation. But he was setting up chain of custody. He was putting authentication on his own letter so they would know him from a forger. He was sending individuals that were trusted by both the writer and the audience to bring together the message without tampering or manipulation. Then we see that they're entrusting it to their successors, like Timothy, like Titus, others that are being left at the churches. We find later in history, others that worked with Peter and Paul. Paul mentions a man by the name of Clement in the book of Philippians. He is there in Rome. He is ordained by Peter in the church of Rome. He becomes the successor of Peter. Polycarp is somebody who is working alongside of John, and he continues the work in Asia Minor, particularly in Smyrna, for the work and the ministry that John started there. We begin to see these successors carrying out the text and message of the apostles and Jesus, and they're doing it in a strategic and a, tact, a lot of tactic to make sure that it's not being corrupted. And then we fast forward ourselves a little bit, and there's a lot that can be expanded upon in that section. But then we look into places like Tertullian. We find ourselves at the end of the second century where he moved down from Rome into North Africa, and he begins to write 
about the Christian faith. Now, Tertullian, to those that may not know this, was a lawyer. And when he defends Christianity and its text, he is using legal terminology. And he fights back in one of his writings against Marcion. Now, Marcion had began a process of corrupting the text of Paul and the Gospel of Luke. And I'm going to read a paragraph from Tertullian in just a second to demonstrate that when we look at the writings of the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, we find that they would have never, the churches would have never received anonymous texts. As I stated, modern scholarship would want us to believe that the churches were just receiving these anonymous gospel accounts that we can't trace to the original writers. There's no bishop that can be identified. There's no church location that can be identified. There's no individuals that can be identified, group or a single person. It is just merely anonymous, and it was meant to be that way. That's just not the case. It, it goes against everything the early church leaders were saying about their texts and how they received them. It's not an issue of bias. It's an issue of taking them at face value with what they're dealing with, and they're telling you how they have these texts, where they came from, how they came into their possession, what was expected of the churches when they received these letters into their possession, and how to maintain them both in distribution, but also a watchful eye of corruption. And Tertullian gives a legal sense of this and an expanded account as to how we should be able to look at the Gospels and recognize that they would have never received, not only not receiving anonymous accounts, but they would have never received an account with an apostle's name on it that cannot be traced. And I'm going to show you how both those things are true. Both those things are true in a statement made by Tertullian. And against Marcion, he wrote in book four, Section two, he states this, Marcion, on the other hand, attaches to his gospel no author's name, as though he, to whom it was no crime to overturn the whole body, might not assume permission to invent a title for it as well. At this point, I might have made a stand arguing that no recognition is due to a work which cannot lift up its head, which makes no show of courage, which gives no promise of credibility but having fully descriptive title and a now let's pause and think about what he's just said. So Marcion takes the gospel of Luke and he mutilates it. He begins to corrupt it. Now you got to remember about Marcion. He did not accept anything in Judaism or Jewish scripture. So he eliminated from his mind, any canon of the old Testament. So anything that was Jewish or in the sense of Old Testament linked to Luke, he was taking out. He was mutilating it. When he published his mutilated gospel of Luke, he left the title anonymous. And this is what Tertullian is saying. It's quite interesting that when Tertullian explains this a little bit more in depth, he says the gospel had no author's name as though he to whom it was no crime to overturn the whole body might not assume per permission to invent a title for it as well. So his thing is, when you look at Marcion, he put a gospel out there with no title and everyone becomes instantly suspicious. Suspicion kicks in and now everybody's wondering what Marcion is up to because they're seeing Luke-like verses with a lot of changes and missing links. But at the same time, 
they're seeing things that are familiar in the gospel of Luke they have. So Tertullian, when investigating Marcion's motive, his intentionality of functioning with this text and what he thought to get out of this text and what he hoped to achieve out of this text, he begins to realize that he didn't think this through very well. And that no one was going to recognize a work that would not lift up its own head, that doesn't have any pride to it, which makes no show of courage, he says, which gives no promise of credibility by having fully descriptive title. You've lost credibility with the churches the minute you shoved an anonymous text into their door because it has no way to be traced. The churches were not just looking for names on documents. They were looking for chain of custody. Where did this letter come from? If it's from an apostle, there, there should be things that can be seen. So let's consider that. Let's consider that in, in light of what Tertullian says in his works as well. He says later on in his writings, if a heresy arises during the age of the apostles or even shortly after, he says, we can trace this. We can find out where it came from. And if it does go back to an apostolic age, he says, let them produce the original records of their churches, meaning all the churches have a history. They have an existence. They have a story. They have individuals. They have documents. They have correspondence. They have leaders. They have ordinations. And therefore within the churches themselves, they contain within each of them history, traceable, tangible history. And so if somebody says in this part of the world, we have a letter from the apostles or we have a teaching from the apostles, Tertullian says, okay, you're in this part of the world. Paul started these churches over here. What do Paul's churches have? Do the churches that Paul created the ones that he birthed by the gospel preaching and establishing of bishops in their location. If these churches are Paul's, he wrote to them. He gave them instruction. He gave them guidance. He gave them leaders. He gave them structure within their church. And therefore, if this letter truly is from Paul, then the church should already have it in their archives. It should be in their records. They should have witness to it. They should have quoting of it. They should have reading, public reading of it. Uh, they should have prayer connected to it. They should have teaching and expositing of it. If this truly did come from the apostles, if this truly did come from the work of the apostles, it should be traceable by due succession. So notice what he goes on to say. Let them produce these original records of the churches. Let them unfold the role of their bishops running down in due succession from the beginning in such manner that the first bishop of theirs should be able to show his ordainer. Meaning, uh, and he gives examples. He gives examples of Polycarp to John and Clement to Peter. If Clement is saying this is the letter or this is the writing or this is the instruction of Peter, somebody needs to be able to go to Clement and say, all right, hold on. Did Clement get ordained by Peter? Do we have record of this? Do we have witness of this? Yes. Okay, Clement, Linus, others in Rome were ordained. We have others who followed John. We have Ignatius. We have Papias of Heriopolis. We have Polycarp, probably the most prolific. We look at Polycarp and we go, okay, Polycarp was ordained by John, and we have record of that in the churches of the East. So he's placed strategically in Smyrna, a persecuted church, 
where he would find later martyrdom at the end of his life. And we find record of him as a bishop placed by John in that area. Therefore, if a document rises in the time of the apostles or shortly after when Polycarp is alive, when the document arises and it has John's name on it, you can easily say, okay, we have a document. It says it's from John and there are apocryphal works and pseudo apocryphal works with John's name on it. They can look at it and say, what do the churches of John have? Because I've never seen this one. Uh, it doesn't look like something that I have knowledge of. Let's check the churches. Let's go to the bishops and say, for example, Irenaeus, who was then after Polycarp. So you have John, who ordained Polycarp, trained him. You have Polycarp, who ordained and trained Irenaeus. And Irenaeus, we have a large volume of writings from him, whereas with Polycarp, we have just a very little, mostly from his writing to the Philippian church. But we do have a lot from Irenaeus. We can go to Irenaeus, who's ordained and trained under Polycarp, who is trained under John, and say, hey, what do your records have on this writing that's come in? It's got John's name on it. Irenaeus can pull the archives he has accessed and ordained into and say, this is not in our line from John. John never sent this letter. We have John's letters. We have John's gospel. We have his epistle. We have his apocalypse. We do not have this letter. This is not from John. He was never entrusting these letters to us. We don't have it in our line. Polycarp didn't have it. I don't have it. It's not in the archives. Instantly, the church is dismissive of this letter from John. And if the structure is this sound, then how much more and how much quicker would they have rejected a document without any name? How much more would they have rejected a gospel narrative, the size and volume of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then just receive them? And then they either one, just accepted them ignorantly, or two, they accepted them willingly and attributed those names that are on them because they wanted to. There's, there's a few problems with this. L let me give you one. What benefit is the church putting Mark and Luke on gospel names? Th think about that for a minute. When we look at actual forged gospels, Thomas, Peter, Mary, Philip, what do we see about these gospel accounts? Well, what we see is this. They're using eyewitness names. They're not, they're not using second down the line people. I'm not saying Mark's not important. I'm not saying Luke's not important, but let's think about John Mark. Let's think about his his involvement in the Pauline ministry. First of all, he started a split between Paul and Barnabas because he was kind of a coward at first. John Mark, is his light is very dim very early on. It isn't until the end of Paul's life that he sees him as profitable in 2 Timothy. Peter saw value in him in 1 Peter. But when we see John Mark in narrative, it's not good. He actually causes a major bickering and split between Paul and Barnabas. Who would name a gospel after him? Luke is insignificant in nature. 
He's not one of the apostles. He's not an eyewitness. He's not even one of the people that has demonstrated in Paul's ministry going out and, and being a bishop in a church like Ephesus, like Timothy was, or in Crete, like Titus was. He wasn't even one of those. He wasn't like one of the greats in Paul's team that was known as this great speaker, like Apollos, who went to Corinth and spent time in Ephesus. There's no time, there's no evidence of Luke being any of those things. He's just called a beloved physician. So what benefit is it? How is he any different than somebody like Zenus, the lawyer who traveled with Paul? It'd be like attributing a gospel to Zenus. Why would you do that? Or Nesiphorus, who was just a great encourager and often refreshed Paul while he was in imprisonment. The gospel of Nesiphorus, we wouldn't. What benefit is it to attribute these individuals who are not eyewitnesses, but actual disciples of the apostles to the gospels, putting their name on it? Makes no sense. They would have done what the Gnostics did, and that started attributing as many eyewitnesses as you can find to the gospel text themselves. And I don't see that as being a good argument at all to bringing these in and the churches is accepting these anonymous letters, attributing the names to it. And then we look at Matthew. Out of all the people, Matthew, even with his dispute, and, and I did a whole entire discussion uh, with, and with somebody on our YouTube channel about this. I did a whole thing on is Matthew and Levi the same guy. I believe they are. But even with that, there's so much controversy. And what one little story we have about Matthew is that he was at a tax collector table and he was called away from the tax collector table and he followed Jesus. And then there's debate whether or not that was actually Levi and, and, and Matthew being the same guy anyway. So what good is it to put his name on there? He's not one of the inner three. He's not James. He's not John or Peter. Putting Peter's name on it would make the most sense. Yeah. Maybe Andrew. Because he's more versatile and more involved than some of the others. But not Mark, not Luke, and not Matthew. So the only one that would make actual sense is John. But here's the reality. That wasn't happening. They weren't just receiving anonymous texts. They weren't just receiving texts and then attributing names to them. It would not have worked. Hear me out. If let's just say, because nobody can trace this, let's just say that the churches of Alexandria decided we want to put Mark's name on this text. We're going to do it. We're going to create this. Why in the world would the churches in Turkey, John's churches, buy into that? Why would the church of Rome buy into that? Why would the church of Antioch buy into that? Why would the churches in Caesarea and Jerusalem buy into that? What advantage is it? How likely is it that the church of Alexandria goes, all right, we have an anonymous text. We really, really like it. We want to put a name on it. We're going to go with John Mark, regardless of his reputation in scripture for the most part. We're going to attribute it to him. We're going to send it out to the other churches and tell them that they should accept it. We got a gospel from Mark and John's churches who are fully in the know of what the apostles were distributing. And I'm going to show you in a second where Tertullian actually demonstrates, even if there's a gospel that comes in with an apostle's name on it, there should be a lot of tests that prove that. But just for kicks, 
this gospel gets sent down to the churches of John and Paul's and Peter's. And then all of a sudden you find that they're like, oh, oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the church of Alexandria said it's from Mark. So it's from Mark. We're just going to go with it. When all the bishops who were trained by the apostles were alive, like Polycarp, Clement, Dionysius in Antioch, or Ignatius in Antioch, what we're supposed to believe is that they were just going to go along with this and say, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, John Mark, that's what, and that'll be our story of how we got it too. As if they didn't have origination of how they received their texts from the earliest stages. You see, when you start actually breaking this down, it becomes rather silly and more conspiratorial than it is historical narrative of how something can actually take place. We have traceable evidence of where and when these texts came in and out and to whom they belonged and to whom they were addressed. And we have it within the boundaries Tertullian is saying to us. Unfold the records. Check the bishops. Why? Because if the bishops had it from the apostles, it was being publicly read in the church. And if Mark's gospel was from Peter under Mark's writing, and he recorded Peter's sermon and it was distributed to the churches, the bishops all know about it. They all have it and they're all reading it. So you have successors in place who know what text to read publicly in the church. This is what Eusebius was investigating, folks. When Eusebius was looking into the actual texts themselves, and finding out which canonical statuses of books were in the churches. He was going through the archives and succession line of bishops and seeing what was publicly being read as scripture and not. Because they were publicly reading other works and they distinguished them from the writings of the apostles and the prophets. We even see that in the Muratorian fragment at the very end, that they were reading other works like the shepherd of Hermas, but not in the same manner they were reading the apostles and the prophets. Well, how did they know the difference? Even though Hermas was a disciple of Paul who mentions him by name. How is it they knew to read works like that or Clement, first Clement, or the epistle of Barnabas or the Didache? How did they know to read those publicly in church, but to distinguish them from the apostles and the prophets? Because they knew which text traced to who in its origin. And they were publicly being read from the time the apostles sent it. This isn't, this isn't brain surgery. Paul told the Colossian church to publicly read the letter and then to send a copy to the church at Laodicea. They were publicly reading them when they received them. When Paul wrote Corinthians to the Corinthians, it was publicly led by the, read by the leaders. When it was sent to the Colossians, it was publicly read to the church by the leaders, copied and sent to the sister churches down the street. This was the process. The leaders were all in connection with the apostle, the carrier of the letter, 
the recipients and the leaders, the church hearing the words of the apostles from the minutes they received it to the distribution to the next leaders, the custody and the chain of connection continued on and continued on for the years. So when a new text shows up with somebody's name on it, that's an apostle. The minute that takes place, they have to go through a rigorous viewpoint by saying, where did this letter come from? We've got a letter from Paul. Let's just say Corinthians. We already got one from Paul. He actually did sent two by that point, by the way. Go back to my episodes on 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. You'll see what I'm talking about. They receive another letter from Paul. How do they know it's Paul? Same standard. You got a entrusted carrier of the letter. You have Paul, you have trusted leaders connected by this carrier, given over by the signature of Paul, etc. All the things I've already said, and they do it again. If those processes are not in place, a letter from Paul comes in, they know to reject it. We see this in the Muratorian fragment. It even says that there's letters attributed to Paul, like one to the Alexandrians and one to the Laodiceans. But the Muratorian fragment concluded they were not Paul. How did they know that in Rome? Because that's probably where the Muratorian fragment was from. How did they know that? Tertullian is telling us the records of succession of both documents and bishops who are publicly reading and entrusted with them that goes back to the origination of the text from the apostles who trained the bishops to use them and read them and teach them and study them. And then they taught their successors and then they taught their successors. And within the line of succession is text attached to the successors because that's the text they were teaching and reading every week in church and copying and distributing. This is the chain of custody that was built. And he gives examples again, like Clement of Rome from Peter and Polycarp from Smyrna with John. So they need to submit this. But that's with a, that's a text that comes in with the apostles' name and teaching in it. What about an anonymous? Well, he told us, and we read it a minute ago, the churches would have never entertained an anonymous letter, especially the size of the Gospels. And he says that a, a letter that comes in or a gospel that comes in with no name shows a lack of courage and promises no credibility by leaving a, a non-descriptive title without indication of an author's name. It's already, let me put it in our vernacular. It is a red flag if you get a letter with no name on it, with a bunch of Christian theology. It's a coward's letter who doesn't have uh, the desire to be fact-checked or show enough credibility within itself by giving you its name. This becomes the issue. This becomes the problem. He goes on to say, now the authors whom we possess, Marcion seems to have singled out Luke. So Luke is the only one he seems to have mutilated. Because he says, for the mutilating process. Luke, however, was not an apostle. But, but only an apostolic man. Meaning he was with an apostle, trained by an apostle. But he wasn't an apostle himself. Not a master, but a disciple. And so inferior to a master. Meaning Luke was not even capable of producing a text himself without the master's approval. 
And he goes on to say, at least as far as subsequent to him as the apostle whom he followed, and that is no doubt Paul, he says, was subsequent to the others. So that had Marcion even published his gospel in the name of St. Paul himself, the single authority of the document, destitute of all support from preceding authorities, would not be sufficient basis for our faith. What is Tertullian saying? He's saying, okay, let's just say Marcion did put a name on it, and he went to Matt, not, not the student, Luke, but put the master's name on it, Paul. Once he put the master's name on it, then all of a sudden, what do you find is test one is passed, but that's not the end of the story. So just because the document comes in with an apostle's name doesn't mean the church accepts it. Hear him again. Had Marcion published his gospel in the name of St. Paul himself, the single authority, meaning the description, the name on the top, of the document destitute of all support from the other preceding authorities would be of no sufficient basis for our faith. Meaning, a name on a document is an important start for the church to even take it serious. No name on the document, we don't take it. A name on the document, we give it stage one. But if it's not consistent with other preceding authorities and it's supported by them, we don't accept it. What does he, what preceding authority? What is he talking about? What I just mentioned, the succession, the bishops, the archives, what was the church reading? Did the disciples of the apostle say the apostle wrote this and that he was with him? Like Luke was with Paul or Clement was with Peter, whatever. And they were trained with these texts and, and using them to constantly teach the people of God throughout the churches. And if not, even though it has an apostle's name on it, it's rejected. He says it's not sufficient basis for our faith. He said there would still lack the gospel which St. Paul found in existence, to which he yielded his belief, and with which so earnestly wished to own to agree that he actually on that account went up to Jerusalem to know and consult the apostles, lest he should run or have been running in vain. And he's talking about Galatians 2 there. In other words, that the faith which has been learned and the gospel which he was preaching might be in accordance with theirs. This is what Paul did. Remember, he went back to Jerusalem and he consulted with the authorities, the other apostles, and made sure that they were on the same team. Making sure they have the same goal. Now, if Paul said that he did that, and he did in Galatians 2, um, if Paul were to produce his own gospel, he would not have done it independently without consulting with the other eyewitness apostles. Folks, again, I, I, I do not believe that John is a single volume independent gospel with just John. I don't think Matthew is just, I think Matthew is a group gospel. You missed all of the reasons why I believe that. Go back to all my podcasts. I did two entire episodes on Matthew. I did two entire episodes on John. And I talk about why they're group gospels. We see John actually accepting Matthew, Mark, and Luke, knowing of their existence, approving of their truths, and helping publish them. John knew of the other gospels. It was a team group effort. 
to get the message of the gospel out accurately about the life, ministry, teachings of Jesus. And if Paul, to make sure his gospel sermons were in line with Peter, James, and the others, by going to Jerusalem and consoling with them, then we, with, by consulting with them, then we ought to accept the fact that if he published a gospel, he'd have done the same thing. And the fact is, he did it with Luke. Luke went back with him to Jerusalem and into Caesarea, and he spent time with Peter. He spent time with Philip. He spent time with the other apostles and the other eyewitnesses that were there. And as a result of doing that, Luke began to write a gospel by collecting the testimonies of the eyewitnesses with Paul's leadership and authority because he's the master and Luke's the student. But he would not have done it without the others. It is very clear that, especially in, in Acts, that Luke had spent time, and we see in, in, in the we and us passages of Acts, that Luke was with Paul when he was with Peter. And therefore, he would have known Peter, and he would have talked to Peter, and Peter would have been like, hey, you need to make sure you include this. You need to make sure you include that. Or, hey, on Pentecost, these are the words that I said. I preached a sermon. I said this. And Luke would have recorded it. Because it is a group effort to get the correct message out. So if Paul did publish a gospel in his name and Marcion had the gospel of Paul, the real one, then, then Marcion would not be the only one who maintained a copy. The other churches that were working with Paul and the other apostles' churches would have had knowledge and copies of it as well because Paul did not operate independently. His preaching was in accordance with the other apostles' And it, then he goes on to say, then at last, having conferred with the primitive authors, having agreed with them touching the rules of faith, and we even see them coming together in Acts 15. We see them having a council meeting to make sure they're on the same page at the Council of Jerusalem. So touching the rule of faith, they joined their hands in fellowship, divided their labors thenceforth in the office of preaching the gospel, so that they would go to the Jews, St. Paul to the Jews and the Gentiles, inasmuch, therefore, as the enlightener of St. Luke himself desired the authority of his predecessors, both of his own faith and preaching, how much more may not I require for Luke's gospel that which was necessary for the gospel of his master? Meaning, I'm not letting a gospel go free just because it has an apostle's name on it. If I hold this criticism to Luke, and I have to say, all right, Luke's not an apostle. Why should I accept his gospel? Why should I accept it? Well, because he was under their master. Who was his master? Paul. Oh, Paul conferred with them. And he basically says that, that Luke and Paul traveled together and met with the other authorities and that his gospel was a co-effort joined by, by the, the leaders in Jerusalem and the other apostles to get the gospel both to Jews and Gentiles for Paul's ministry, meaning Luke was an approved gospel by the apostles so that when Luke's gospel is distributed, Peter's churches were taking it. John's churches were taking it. Paul's churches were taking it. Andrew's churches were taking it. They were all taking it because it was joint to bring the message of Christ into the world and to make sure it was accurate and succinct. This is why Luke was able to say, I wrote to you, most excellent Theophilus, a perfect account because he got the facts from the people who actually heard and saw Jesus and worked by con including these things had happened by the testimony and the hands of fellowship of the apostles who worked together to get the accuracy out there. And so by that standard, if and this is what he says, if I'm going to hold Luke to that standard, how much more is it going to be necessary for somebody to put the name of a master 
not the apprentice, the master on a document that has no joint effort and fellowship with other apostolic churches and leaders. And if it was Paul, we know Paul did that. We know he did it. He said he did it in Galatians. He did it in Jerusalem in Acts 15. Therefore, we know if Paul was going to ever publish a gospel, he would never have done it independently without consulting with the other leaders the way Luke did. Therefore, we would never accept a gospel of Paul that was not known to the other apostolic churches started by other apostles, because that's not the way the gospels were being published. They did not just accept anonymous texts. They did not just accept texts with apostles' names on them. That's why they rejected the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Mary, the gospel of Philip. That's why they rejected these texts. Because they did not meet the criteria. They were not known to the churches. The minute they came in, they may have had an apostle's name but they, ne they never had any lineage to the apostolic churches, the public reading of them by their successors and those that knew the apostles and those that were trained by them who knew the apostles and so forth and so on. And here we are with Tertullian and Irenaeus all writing against Marcion. And they are in line with the apostles. They're in succession line. Irenaeus is not far removed. He was a disciple of Polycarp who knew John. So, yeah, oh, yeah, he's 100 years later. We can't trust that. Well, first of all, there's a lot of problems with that argument. Within that problem is the fact of who he was and what position he held and who put him there and what was handed to him. He's not insignificant just because he's removed from John. He's not that far removed from John. He's very closely connected to John through one man. It's the difference between a grandchild and a grandfather, if you would. It's not that big of a, a gap here. What was handed to him was from Polycarp and Polycarp taught him what was handed to him by John and so forth and so on. By the time this is happening by Tertullian and Irenaeus, who are not that far removed from the apostles, they're saying, we have a system in place. This ain't happening. And that's how they knew to catch Marcion and what he was doing because an anonymous text came in. They were able to trace it. They finally found it to be Marcion, but he tried to sneak it into the church without a name because there was no courage in the work. And the churches are like, this is a joke. So what would happen if an anonymous text, which is being accused of being accepted, this is, this is what's being stated that the churches were receiving. The four gospels were anonymous and they were attributing letters to them. It could not happen. It could not take place. There was too many things set up between the apostles and their successors and their successors and the archives of texts that were being pub publicly read for some new text to come in and they just stamp somebody's name on. There would have been schisms. The other churches of the apostles would have been like, what are they doing down there in Alexandria? Or what are they doing in Byzantium? What are they doing in Caesarea? What in the world are they doing in Rome? We see when these things kind of things happen where something is elevated that's outside of the tradition handed to them, the churches rise up and go, um, what, what do you, what is this? And who is this guy? Why is he acting this way? Somebody needs to do something about this. They instantly called it out. That's why the minute Marcion tried his nonsense, churches everywhere, Irenaeus in the East, Tertullian in North Africa, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not, not from the apostles. What kind of coward submits an anonymous gospel? 
What kind of coward does this? Oh, it's Marcion. Well, let's figure out why. And they wrote an entire, both he and Irenaeus wrote against Marcion and what he did. So I, I do not accept the notion in modern scholarship, so to speak, that the Gospels were anonymous. Churches would have never accepted them, period, period. Tertullian had already talked about, he just explained why. And they wouldn't have accepted a document just because somebody stamped an apostle's name on it. There had to be other connecting factors that trace it to the apostles and their successors and everybody universally in the churches were received it. Folks, th this is why Origen said that the four gospels have been universally accepted under heaven by the churches. All the churches of the apostles under God's kingdom on earth. The universe, if you would, under his power and universe is the kingdom of God in his churches throughout the world. Scattered. Those churches all had four gospels because all those churches were started by the apostles who authorized, published, and demonstrated by writing these very gospels. Therefore, they would not have accepted a fifth or rejected one of the four because of what Tertullian was saying. They were in fellowship and in harmony at getting the message of the gospel out to anybody and everybody they could. That, that's, that's, the, that's it. That's it. Uh, to impose this ridiculous anonymous stuff on our gospels has never been used in history. Nobody ever believed that into the last 200 years. If we want to pull the consensus card, we aren't doing a big enough consensus. I don't care what the consensus of modern day scholarship says because we can change consensuses within 10 to 15 years. The consensus was that uh, there was a document called Q that was out there, a hypothetical sayings gospel. And that consensus is shrinking every time there's any kind of vote taken in academia. But the consensus once says it was true. Consensus doesn't dictate truth. And if we're going to take a consensus, let's take a consensus all the way from the second century to today. And I assure you, when we go through all those who touch these documents over the last 1800 years, what you're going to find is the consensus is it is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If we look at all the scholars, all the historians, all the bishops, all the priests, all the philosophers in the church, and those that studied the text for the last 1800 years, the consensus works against anonymous gospels. And Tertullian and Irenaeus and others would, would, laugh at our criteria today in modern scholarship as to how we came to conclude that they were dumb enough to accept anonymous gospels without names on them or that they asserted names onto them and that they were able to work this behind the scenes and get all the churches universally in the world to accept the same conclusions that they created and manipulated or that they inserted onto them and that everybody just bought into the program universally. And there was no schism over this at all. They would have been uh, laughing at the procedure as which we concluded of them on these texts when they had the proper things in place to debunk it. Uh, so this, this to me is, a, it's not very hard to figure out. I know that people struggle with this. I think there's um, the idea of bias in here is what we get accused of. I think the bias is, is that, there's people that really don't want them to be eyewitness based. I think that there are people out there that don't want them to be authenticated by the apostles because if they are, they hold a greater weight and a greater responsibility to them. Perhaps. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people may reject them, but to me, there's a bias against the gospels today while accusing all the Christians of having bias. And what we're doing is we're not showing bias. I'm not showing bias in this. I'm showing the records. I'm pulling up the people who were entrusted with these texts 
just a few years after the apostles. And they're telling us how they got them and how they rejected others that came in like them. And therefore, I'm just reading what they're saying and looking at the model that they built from the apostles to their day and saying this makes the most sense of why and where these texts came from. Uh, and so therefore, I don't accept a lot of these things. Uh, I don't accept the, uh, uh, the anonymity of these gospel texts. That's why I don't accept the Q manuscript or the Q hypothesis, because there's no evidence of one. Um, we don't need it if we have eyewitness base and we have groups working together and we have teams of apostles working together. We, we don't need a Q document if Paul's people are working with Peter's people and Andrew's people are working with Matthew's people and so forth and so on. We don't need it. They're working together. And, and, and it's not, it's not stealing. It makes sense that Luke would use Mark because Mark is Peter's eyewitness testimony in written form. So why that saves Luke a lot of work to use a star witness like Peter as the basis of his text, because he has a star witnesses testimony in written form. It makes sense. He would use Mark and then build on it with the other collected testimonies he received in his travels. So th th this is, this is the arguments. This is what we're dealing with. The early church did not accept anonymous gospels, nor do they accept gospels that were just instituted with the apostles names on them. And again, thanks for those that jumped in and thanks for those that tuned into this program. It is both a live stream and some of you are going to be watching this uh, or excuse me, listening to this later on as well as we go through uh, different series on the podcast facts. So make sure you check that out. Uh, those that streamed in and put comments in, thank you so much for doing that. Appreciate your feedback. It means a lot to me. Hopefully this was uh, encouraging. I got a little worked up because I'm kind of getting tired of hearing this kind of stuff all the time now. Uh, kind of get tired of hearing uh, the gospels being just treated so loosely as if there was no standard. But again, always appreciate your support. Thanks for tuning in. Grace and peace to you.